Am I on? You can hear me? Great, thank you. I just want to test is this on. Yes, it's on. Great. So, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church this morning. I hope you're well. And uh, thank you to Jess and the band. That was excellent. Fantastic. Just keep going. There's going to be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God in this place. I really do believe it. So everyone, just keep up the work that you're doing, and God will bless you, and he will bless this place. I'm certain of it. I, I have that certainty, because I had, when I came to faith, I had an awesome encounter with the Lord that just blew my socks off. I saw Jesus nailed to the cross in my mother's home. And it just... <laughs> I've not been the same man since, I can tell you. This is 20, over 20 years ago. And prior to that, I'd never read the Bible. But God had put something inside my heart from the moment I got born again to read his word, to study his word. And I have a love for it, but I also have a love to communicate it to, to people. And particularly non-Christians also. Like I know family members who I've spoken word of God to and I've just explained things. They just say, you've got a way of explaining it I've not heard before. Well, it's not... I've got to be honest, it's not really me. It's a gift that God has given to me from the moment I got born again. So I hope this morning that I can express that gifting to you and I can bring something fresh, something dynamic and something from, straight from the Word of God that will enliven you, enliven your hearts, encourage you and stir you up and keep encouraging you to continue doing the good works that God has called you to do. So, right, I hadn't planned to say that. So... Good morning and welcome, as I said. And I just want to say a special welcome to any guests as well. Obviously, welcome to the church, but if you're here for the first time, very good welcome. And also, um, if there will be some people listening on the podcast, I know, at some point, possibly in Australia, maybe. Um, I know once people have known that I've, I've spoken today, that there will be some people in America and Ireland listening, but I'm sure there'll be others listening too. So spe- a very special welcome to you, this morning. I trust that God will bless you and encourage you. Now, I'm going to go through quite a few slides today. I'm going to go quite quickly at some points, but I'm going to speak in a narrative form, but I will have lots of scriptures. So all these scriptures will be available on the website afterwards. So if you want to pull off a copy for yourselves and study them, that's the reason I've put the scriptures there. So you can double check what I've taught and enjoy. So, let's get started. So, my theme today is we're doing a series on God's big picture. It's an overview of the Bible, and my theme today is the present kingdom. And the aim of the series, Ben said at week one, is to show that the Bible is one story. So, that's all 66 books authored by 40 authors, written over a period of 2,000 years, are all one story. And behind it all is the hand and the inspiration of God. God is the divine author behind the human authors. And then last week, Paul asked the question, what should we be getting out of these talks? Well, they are designed to help us see God's grand plan of salvation unfolding through time. They are to help us grasp some foundational truths, and they are to help us have a greater desire to read and to study the Bible. Now, I've got to admit, when I first started reading the Bible, I could not concentrate for more than 30, 40 seconds. And it's because I had quite, a, uh, quite an intense job. I did a lot of reading, but I just prayed that God would help me, and he did. Now, I, one of my brothers struggles to find the time to read, 
It's almost as though there's something spiritual stopping him spending time in the Word of God. So I would encourage you, if, if anyone here is struggling to read God's Word, there might be a spiritual battle going on. I just pray that the Lord would help you get stuck into it, because you will be blessed. So, my, I just, so following on from Paul's um, question last week, as I was tidying up my house, um, I came across the New Line Handbook of the Bible. And it's a great book, and I just want to recommend it as, as a supplement to this course. It will um, reinforce what's being taught in this course. Uh, I'd encourage everyone to get a copy. It's very pictorial, but it's very historical and accurate as well. So, my scope today, and it's a huge scope, it's the Gospels, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's the Kingdom. So, the first thing I did, I've got quite an analytical mind, was to do a search on Kingdom, and I found there's 158 references to Kingdom in the Bible. 158, and I thought, right, where do I start with all of this? So I was quite encouraged a few weeks ago when Craig said he was daunted by the task that lay before him, because I was sitting there at the back, and I thought, I know what you mean, Craig. <laughs> so I was feeling, I'm glad I'm not the only one who felt daunted. So, but although there's 158, obviously I can't cover all of it, so I'm going to focus primarily on Matthew's Gospel, I'm going to spend a little time in Matthew chapter 4, looking at the temptation of Jesus. So if you want to open that, I'll come to it in about five or ten minutes. But we we will spend a little bit of time there. But in terms of the scope and and before us, Craig and I and and everyone else, we've not been alone. Because unveiling God's word is quite a challenge. and It's quite a task. And I've been reading a book called The Nation's Gospel by Jeremy Thomas. Now, he is a lawyer, and he's been encouraged to write this book by Rico Tice, who is an evangelist, who, who started the Christianity Explored course. Now, Jeremy Thomas has brought out from his reading that Hugh Latimer, who, who was a former bishop of Worcester and a chaplain to King Edward, warned King Edward, so I'm warning Ben, <laughs> warned King Edward at the beginning of a sermon that it would take three to four hours to deliver, unless the king commanded otherwise. Well, I don't know what the king commanded, but it proved to be his last ever sermon. So so I'm not sure whether this will be my last ever sermon, but I have enough material for three or four weeks, never mind three or four hours. But I'm glad to say I've managed to compact it, so hopefully I'll be able to deliver it in the time allotted. So, by the way, also evangelistic strategies, it's worth having a read of that book. Chapter 3, they give strategies to convert a nation, this nation. So, where do do I start with all of this? Well, Paul finished last week with... Sorry, I've lost one of my slides. Okay, Paul started last week finished last week with the promise from Malachi that God would send a messenger from Malachi chapter 3 and he would go before the Lord. I just want to pick up on the very last chapter in Malachi which is chapter 4 where God said through the prophet Malachi that he will send Elijah the prophet before the great 
and the coming day of the Lord. So that's how the Old Testament finishes. So this is the same Elijah who on Mount Carmel challenged Israel whom they would serve, to decide whom would they serve. Would they serve the false god of the prophets of Baal or would they serve the true and the living God? The God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Would they serve the God who answered Elijah's prayer with fire from heaven? So this is the same Elijah who was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and in a chariot of fire. Now, if I was an Israelite, I'd be thinking, wow, send on Elijah. Come on, Elijah. So what we find in the Old Testament, that it finishes like a dramatic film trailer. There is the promise of the return of Elijah. The prophet of the Lord God Almighty is announced to Israel by the prophet Malachi. Now, this was promised in roundabout these dates of, we can't be exact, but round about 450 so BC, some scholars have it round about 425. But then, after that promise is given, there is then silence. And there's silence for over 400 years. But then there's a rumor heard in Israel. There's the rumor heard of the birth of a king. For wise men had come from the east. And they had, been, they had said, they went to the center of power in Jerusalem. And they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Well, Herod was the king in Jerusalem. Herod was the king of Judea. He'd been appointed by the Roman Senate in 40 BC and he fought his way to take that throne and he took it in 37 BC. Herod heard this news. Well, he was a tyrant king. Herod would execute anyone who was a threat to his throne and that included, that included his wife, his mother-in-law, one his son-in-law and two of his sons. He had ten wives, by the way. So Herod was not going to take this news lying down. He was troubled by this news that there was a king of the Jews had arrived. And he soon put pay to that rumor. So he authorized the massacre of all the male children under two years old in and around Bethlehem. But God had forewarned Joseph it raises the question, did, why didn't God forewarn everyone else? Well, he might have done, we don't know that. But he's definitely warned Joseph. And he warned Joseph in a dream. And he fled with Mary and the baby Jesus to safety in Egypt until the death of Herod. And then, there's 30 years... 30 more years of silence and then like a bolt out of the blue like a thunderbolt of lightning John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea and we read about this in Matthew chapter 3 and he came saying boldly repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now when he came preaching that word preaching doesn't mean he comes to give a nice little homily. It means he came with absolute the boldness, the boldness of God. It's like a herald. 
He's saying, shouting at the top of his voice, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a proclamation. He's not entering into debate and reason. He's declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John had no wealth. He had no power. He had no fame nor fortune. But his words had power. His words were pregnant with power. For he had been filled, we read in Luke chapter 1, that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit since he was a child. In fact, John had been called by God whilst he was in his mother's womb. And that calling was to go before the Lord to prepare his way in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's referring back to Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, that God would send his messenger and he would send Elijah before the Lord. So, we discover next We discover, so John the Baptist come and see him. We discover next that John had been in preparation for all these 30 years, but now his time had come, and God was about to unleash him. God was about to unleash his prophet on the people of Israel. For we read that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and all Israel came to hear him. For he was, as we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Then we discover that all Jerusalem and all Judea, they all came out to listen to John. And they were baptized by him and confessing their sins. And John said to them, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but there is one who is coming after me who is mightier than me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And next we read in the story that Jesus appears on the scene. And we read in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained upon him. And we discover the next day that John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him. He remained upon Jesus. And John said, I did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said he, he has seen and has testified that this is the Son of God. And after his baptism, we read next that Jesus was led, in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. One thing amazes me about the Bible, some of these words, that they are, words have been written, they're like masters of understatement. 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. That was me. I'll be starving. Not hungry. <laughs> starving. Gasping. So, but the devil attacks, attacked Jesus and he attacks us at his weakest point and at our weakest point. So be aware of that. When you're feeling down, get, get some prayer. Get some fellow believers around you and get some encouragement. Don't let the devil take advantage of you. So, the temptation. So we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, that the tempter came to Jesus and he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And then Jesus said in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And he's referring, it is written, man shall live by every word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's referring back to the time of Israel in the wilderness where God gave them manna from heaven. And again, the devil attacks him. The second attack, he took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. But this time the devil says, for it is written, he twists scripture. And, and have you noticed the attack? He casts doubt and he attacks the identity of Jesus. It's exactly what he does to us. He casts, to us. He casts doubt and he attacks our identity. But we need to know the word of God. We need to know who we are in Christ. And Jesus knew the word of God and he knew who he was, the son of God. So he replied to Satan, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you will fall down and worship me. As many people in our society have sold their souls to the devil. I won't go into all of that, but if you're ever tempted or if you know anyone who is, do not go there. Earthly riches are temporary. God's got his eyes on the eternal riches where the streets are paved with gold. The riches in this world are nothing compared to what God has to offer us. So the devil was tempting Jesus with a ring of power. He's tempting him with a crown of Caesar, he's tempting him with all the pearls and the gold and the riches of the world. 
but Jesus is not taken in by his temptations. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So, in the next stage of the story, we learn that Jesus starts his public ministry, and he starts the proclamation of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 4, we learn that the devil left him. And when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Just to say that the temptation was happening further south. And then when Jesus went up to Nazareth, if you read Luke chapter 4, he delivers, he's invited to give a sermon in a synagogue. He opens up the book of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To, so, but the people in Nazareth didn't like what Jesus had to say and they wanted to kill him. So that's why we read in, in Matthew chapter 4, And leaving Nazareth, he was, thrown, he was forced out of Nazareth and he went to Capernaum. Now Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And as you read the Gospels, that's where Jesus is um, ministering most of his ministry uh, before he goes to Jerusalem. Um, that's where he's based mainly. So, and from that time, in verse, 40, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, this preaching, it's a proclamation. And this word, repent, R.T. France, who is or who was the principal at Wycliffe College in, in Oxford, he said that word repent is more than a being sorry. It's more than changing your mind. It's both of those, or, but it's also it's a summons to return to God with all, all of your heart, mind, and soul. To return to God with all of your being. We're to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, time's moving on. I haven't got time to go through all of this. But I just wanted to give you some examples of the priority of the kingdom, or priority of the kingdom in the teaching of Jesus. Um, so he started with repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But if we jump down to Matthew 24, Jesus said, this is about the signs of the times and the coming of the end of the age. Jesus said, this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I just want to emphasise the point that Jesus was passionate about the kingdom when he started out, but he's still passionate about the kingdom today. And he's passionate about the gospel. The same passion Jesus had when he went to the cross, is still, he's still passionate today. And he wants that passion to come through us. He wants that light to come through us. He wants the truth of God to flow through us. He wants us to do his work because he wants people to be saved from what's to come because he does not want people to spend an eternity suffering in hell because they refused his, his gospel. But we're tasked. We can't save anyone, but we, like John, were messengers. We're to bring the gospel. We're to speak the truth. We're to be a light. We're to let the light of God shine. And I know we're not all called to be preachers. We're different, but however and whatever we're called to do, let that light shine and be a good witness for the Lord. So, so the next stage, 
what, I find, what you find is Jesus started his public ministry. As I read the Gospels, I thought, wow, there's, there's real messianic expectation in the Gospels. And uh, I could explain what happened between those 400 years, but I haven't got time to go into that. But those 400 years um, sort of stirred up that messi- messianic expectation because part of it, the Romans came in and took control in 63 BC after 100 years of Jewish independence. So what we find in the Gospels, these messianic expectation, that so Jesus was speaking into a cultural and a historical and a social context that was pregnant with the hope and the expectation of a Messiah. I'll just run through these very quickly. So we see that the people in Luke 3, they reasoned, was John the Christ? Well, no, he wasn't. He was a messenger. Andrew, he was so excited, he ran to his brother, Simon Peter, who is Peter the Apostle. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. That's evidence of the expectation of a Messiah. And again, the Samaritan woman in in, um, John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking to her at the well, she said, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. So the Samaritans also had that expectation. And then the multitudes, they were amazed when they saw the miracles that Jesus did in Matthew 12 and said, could this be the son of David? And again, as Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, chapter 9, which was written 700 years earlier, the king was coming and they were expecting The king was coming on a donkey, lowly, riding on a donkey, bringing salvation. The the people were excited. They were shouting. There were multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people going before and following Jesus and crying out and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were expecting their king riding on a donkey to be crowned with a king. They were expecting that, but he was crowned with a thorn with thorns. Now the high priest at the trial of Jesus also revealed messianic expectations. Now the Pharisees, scribes and um, the priests have all been trying, trying to nail Jesus down and say, who are you? Tell us who are you? They wanted to know whether he was the Christ. But Jesus only admitted to them that he was the Christ when he was put under oath by the high priest. Well, Jesus can't lie and he's under oath. So the high priest tells, says, tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God, tell us. And Jesus said to him, it is, as you said. And hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and, right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is referring there back to Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man who goes to the ancients of days and is given a kingdom. Well, that was enough for the, for the Jewish leadership there to, to chomp at a bit, to go crazy, to, we've got to kill this man, because they knew Jesus was making a statement that he is God. And that title, Son of Man, is a reference to that. So these hopes and expectations were there. And we see this also on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, as they spoke to Jesus before he revealed himself. They um, couldn't understand why Jesus, who didn't, didn't realize it was Jesus as he was speaking. They couldn't understand why he didn't know what had gone on in Jerusalem. They said, have you not heard the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word? And we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Well, redeem Israel from whom? 
well, to redeem them from the Romans. As I said, the Romans came and took occupation in 63 BC uh, through General Pompey, who was based up in Syria. And um, Israel started having puppet, puppet kings, um, such as Herod, um, ruling their nation, but on behalf of Rome. So there was this... Ex so the Roman occupation of Israel had led to this expectation that the son of David, this is the promised son of David, the promised king of Israel would deliver Israel from the yoke of Rome. So there was a popular expectation for a powerful, mighty, all-conquering king. But instead, they got a crucified one. And that's partly because people had misunderstood the scriptures. They'd been reading the scriptures and hearing what they want to hear not listening to the full counsel of God. Now, we can all do that. It's very easy to do that. We can do that if we look at the second coming. We can read it in a particular way, this way or that way. Everyone's got their different opinions. But it all comes back at, at the end of the day. What do the scriptures actually teach? So Jesus had to explain to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ who has suffered. So he explained to them from Moses through to the prophets that the Christ had to suffer. Um, suffer. So we see, this is from my Thompson Chain Reference Study Bible. It's not been written by me, it's another Thompson. Um, they've put <laughs> it's, it's not been written by my family. Although I found some Thompson tea bags in Morrison, so might have some shares in that company, you never know. Um, so so what we, f what we find in the scriptures, there are two realms of prophecy. There's a prophecy to do with the suffering of the Messiah and there's a prophecy to do with the king of the Messiah. It's not two Messiahs, it's the same one Messiah. So Jesus' first coming was dealing with the suffering. Second time, he's coming as the all-powerful conquering king. So... Within the New Testament, we find that it is soaked through from start to finish with the theme of prophetic fulfillment. We see this in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus came from Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus himself said, well, that was Jesus, and Jesus also said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that fulfillment included the prophecies to do with God's suffering servant. And we see in the book of Isaiah, that was written 700 years before Christ was born that it was prophesied that God's righteous servant would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And we all know that, that that is exactly what happened to Jesus. And we also see in Isaiah that it was prophesied that God's righteous servant would be shamed, beaten, and spat upon. He would be imprisoned, judged, and killed. He would be cut off from the land of the living. And in Psalm 22, it says that his hands would be pierced and his feet would be pierced. And in Zechariah chapter 12, 2, 
the piercing of the hands and the feet. And then we read also in Psalm 22 that the garments of the Messiah would be divided and his lots cast, just as the Roman soldiers did hundreds of years later. And also in Psalm 22 we see that it was prophesied that God's righteous servant would be ridiculed, mocked, and that people would say this to him, he trusted in the Lord, let him deliver him. Exactly what was said to those who were wagging their heads as Jesus was nailed to the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down, deliver yourself. But why? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Have you ever asked that question? Well, Jesus is our substitute. And again, it was prophesied 700 years earlier that he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquity and that the Lord God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus on the cross was dealing with the problem of human sin. And Ben explained that at week one where man was originally created in the image of God but has fallen from grace. Man has fallen into sin and this earth is in a mess as a result of it. So Jesus has come to deal with the problem of human sin, but he's also come to save us. And um, this all, all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and the temptation that happened there. God said to the serpent that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, or crush the head of the serpent. Well, this is what happened. This, Jesus is the seed of that woman. He's the one, was it Sally? Sally, this great phrase, serpent crusher. Yeah. Jesus is the one who is the serpent crusher. Amen. And he come to pay the price for our sin and set us free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. And just to emphasize again, it was for the transgressions of God's people that he was stricken. And God made his soul an offering for sin. So we see here that the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement, which we read about in Leviticus chapter 16, it's all pointing to this moment because the Old Testament sacrificial system could not wipe away sins forever. It was just temporary. It was just to bring peace with God for the next year. But it was all designed to point to this moment where God would send his lamb, the lamb of God, to hang on that cross and pay the price for our sins. Now just imagine and think, if you were Mary, you'd be looking at your son, nailed to the cross, knowing that this is an unusual birth because it was a virgin birth and that the Holy Spirit impregnated her And as she's looking at her son, she must be reflecting upon what was said by the angel of the Lord to her and to her husband. I'm going to look at both of those very quickly. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. So this is the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph here, encouraging him not to abandon Mary because she was pregnant. He found out she was pregnant. But um, to, to let him know that she was a righteous woman. 
she had not committed adultery with any human being, that this son that she was carrying, his name would be Jesus, that it was of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, and that he came for a specific purpose, to save his people from their sins. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's saving us from our sins. And Isaiah spoke about this again. He poured out his soul unto death, and he bore the sins of many. So Jesus is our saviour. And Jesus is also our king. So the death is not the end. But Mary must also be reflecting upon the promise given to her in Luke chapter 1, that this son, the son that she's looking at is crucified. He, the angel of the Lord said to her that he will be great, that he will be called the son of the highest, and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is our, save, our substitute. Jesus is our saviour. And Jesus is our king. So the crucifixion of Jesus is not the end. For we know that the, the tomb was empty. We know that Jesus was crucified. And we know that the eyewitnesses were told that he is risen that he has been risen from the dead. And we know that Jesus himself, by the angels, we know that Jesus himself went on to appear uh, to the disciples. So what you see in the Gospels, you see a passion for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed to the people and the nations. They have seen a man crucified, a man who, who was buried, and a man who is now risen from the dead. This, this man is none other than the Son of God. He is the Holy One. And God said in Psalm chapter 16 that God's Holy One would not see corruption. And this is what has happened. That was a prophecy to do with the resurrection of Jesus. I'm just going to conclude now. So, John the Baptist prepared the way, as, we saw, as we've seen in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to deal with the problem of our sin. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and fire. And John the Baptist has testified that Jesus is the Son of God. And God has backed up John's testimony. And God has vindicated his Son by declaring with power that Jesus is indeed the Son of God by raising him from the dead by the Spirit. For Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has defeated death, he has defeated sin, and he has defeated the devil. And Jesus is the one who gives eternal life, for he has conquered the grave. He is almighty God. Jesus is the one who has the keys of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, for Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. He is indeed the king of the Gentiles, for he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And his kingdom is here, and his kingdom is going to come. And his kingdom is here, present now with the preaching of the gospel. His kingdom is wherever you go and deliver that gospel and live that gospel. The kingdom is here now, but the kingdom is going to come in all its glory and all its power. For Jesus is the one 
who was crucified and Jesus is the one who was risen again from the dead. And that is why Matthew starts his gospel with an emphasis upon God's covenant to David. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. And that's why Mark can be so bold and start off his gospel and say, Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's why John, in chapter 1, he emphasizes that in the beginning was the Word, casting minds back to Genesis in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus. So I just want to emphasize as I conclude, that this book is one book. 40 authors, 66 books, but it's all one. And God's hand is behind it. Because God wants to save us from our sins. He wants to bring peace into our lives. He wants us to be reconciled to him. So I just want to pray, finish with prayers. All right, Craig. So, Father, I thank you, Lord God, for your son, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you've opened our eyes to the truth. Lord, I thank you that you've come to heal broken hearts. And Lord, I thank you that you've sent the Holy Spirit to us. And Lord, I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon everyone this day. Lord, may they have a peaceful day anoint your people afresh Lord I pray and bless them in the name of Jesus Amen Wow Wow Thank you Stan